0: So today we're going to wrap up the Upside Down series. We're looking at how the early church turned the world upside down, how this regular group of believers that were empowered by the Holy Spirit lived out their faith in a way that was countercultural, in an upside-down kingdom type of way that brought much glory to Jesus. So we're going to be in the latter section of Acts chapter 14. Uh, but first... In the earlier section of this chapter, Paul and Barnabas are causing quite a commotion. You see, first they're in the Jewish synagogue teaching. Verse 1 says that they spoke so effectively or with so much power that a great number of both Jews and Gentiles became believers. And then God confirmed their teaching and their preaching with miraculous signs and wonders. Amazing. Incredible time of ministry. Well, not everybody thought it was such an amazing time of ministry, and soon a plan arose to stone them to death, they caught wind of this, and they took off. And they fled to Lystra and Derbe. So in Lystra, Paul, and, and know this, Paul's a regular person, but he's got quite a testimony. And this man is filled with the Spirit of God. Paul sees a man with crippled feet, and he looks at the man, and he perceives that this individual has the faith to be healed. And he just looks at him, and he says, Stand up! And the man stands up, and he's healed. Now, I remember reading the book of Acts when I was in high school, and just thinking, this book is a gold mine. Why haven't I been hanging out in this book before? And this this is not like my experience of Christianity. So let me tell you this. If you're feeling a little bit apathetic about your faith these days, camp out in Acts for a couple months and get inspired because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and empowered these people empowers us today. So, the man's healed. This leads to the crowd thinking, hey, we have Greek gods in our midst, and they think it's Zeus and Hermes, and they start to prepare... To offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. Now they didn't just make this up out of thin air. Extra biblical historical sources tell us that they believed that at some point the Greek gods were going to manifest in this way and so they were kind of half expecting something like this to happen. That's why they, they reacted this way. But Paul and Barnabas start tearing their clothes, which is the Jewish custom, when something like this, when somebody's going to try to worship you or sacrifice to you, and they say, no, 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 we're just we're just messengers of God. We're just human like you guys. Don't do this. Um, and they begin to share the good news with these people. But sooner or later, Jews from Antioch and Iconium arrive, and they persuade the crowds otherwise. So guess what? Now we're in a situation where a potential stoning is going to occur again. And that's what happens. They stone Paul. And they drag him out of the town, and he was stoned so badly that they thought he was dead. They left him outside the city, thinking they had stoned him to death. But as the believers gather around Paul, Paul gets up, and he walks back into town with his friends. Incredible. Incredible. Um, just think about that. I mean, Paul is—he's not doing this for himself, you can tell, Right? The guy was almost stoned, and then he was stoned, and he's still doing this gospel ministry. He's not doing this for his own reputation, for his own benefit. He loves Jesus. He is spirit-filled. So they go back into the city, and the next day, Paul and Barnabas leave for Derby. And they preach the gospel there, and many disciples are made. That brings us to the text that we're going to look at, look at today, which is found in Acts 14, 21 through 28. So please stand. We're going to read this uh, passage right now. If you have a church Bible, it's on page 919. This is Acts 14, 21 through 28. After preaching the good news and derby and making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra Aconium and Antioch of Pisidia, where they strengthened the believers. They encouraged them to continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Paul and Barnabas also appointed elders in every church. With prayer and fasting, they turned the elders over to the care of the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Then they traveled back through Pisidia to Pamphylia They preached the word in Perga and then went down to Italia. Finally, they returned by ship to Antioch of Syria where their journey had begun. The believers there had entrusted them to the grace of God to do the work they had now completed. Upon arriving in Antioch, they called the whole church, or they called the church together and reported everything God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles too. And they stayed there with the believers for a long time. Please take a seat this morning. So we have a lot to learn from the ministry of Paul and Barnabas as they retrace their missions, trip steps, teaching, and encouraging the believers, all the while giving Jesus all the glory for everything that's happening. As we look at verse 21... We can see that they didn't linger in, uh, Lystra, but they, but where Paul was left for dead, but they continued on to Derby. This is where they made many disciples. We see this in the first part of verse 21. After preaching the good news in Derby and making many disciples. Now this is pretty incredible if you think about it. Paul was just stoned and left for dead. Then he got up, went back to where this occurred, and then completed a journey, likely on foot, that probably would have been at least a few days long, showing up in derby, still bearing the scars and the bruises of the plot against his life. He probably looked like he'd been in an MMA match or worse. He was beat up, and he showed up. He showed up to do to do gospel ministry. This guy is incredible. But you have to understand, it's the, again, it's not him. It's the Spirit of God empowering him, to do these things but it's incredible when you think about sometimes we just kind of gloss over the text oh he was stoned and left for dead but think about that it's mind boggling that he could continue on in that way can you imagine the authority that Paul enjoyed that he spoke with while proclaiming the gospel I mean he's spirit filled the ministry is not about him it's about Jesus He's been suffering, and then he shares the good news. It's no surprise that many disciples were made. Now before you just think, hey, Paul's a superstar, I'm a regular Christ follower, just remember, in the same way, you have scars that you bear in your life. You have experiences that you've been through, and God wants to use that to reach other people for Jesus. And you have a because of these experiences of these scars that you bear, you have authority to speak into people's lives, to point them to Jesus. So have you suffered with illness? With cancer? Have you survived a divorce? A job loss? Unjust treatment because you're a Christ follower? Then live your life with conviction and encourage others while you point them to Christ, because God can use the scars that you bear as well. So with incredible fruit and derby, Paul and Barnabas continue on. Let's go back to the text, second part of 21 and 22. Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia, where they strengthened the believers. They encouraged them to continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So Paul and Barnabas are going back the way that they had come, revisiting these newly established Churches along the way, first Lystra, then Iconium, and finally Antioch. And in each congregation they go to, excuse me, in each congregation that they visit, they're strengthening, encouraging, and establishing leadership. And you know what? We still do this today. I'm excited to be part of a church that does this kind of thing today. In our family of churches, we have churches being planted. One of them is not too far away. It's in Peoria, in Arizona, just outside of Phoenix. And um, Pastor Annette and Jay Wiebe had the privilege of going there to do some of this type of strengthening and encouraging work with that church. I've got a couple pictures here. This is a few weeks ago. There's Jay giving an encouraging word to Axiom Church. That's Pastor Gavin on the right. So here they are. They're launching their new... Uh, building, the church has already been, uh, going on for quite some time, but they have a building of their own now. But here's the incredible thing about this. Here you got Jay sharing a word of encouragement with them. But this isn't the first time Jay was there. Jay was on the board of Home Mission, part of a team of people that identified Gavin, believed in him, equipped him, and got the work going there and had been there with him along the way. And now Jane and Annette get to go there at this stage in the church's development and encourage them, strengthen them, and be a blessing. So that's really exciting. This is the kind of thing that our family of churches still does today. Follow-up discipleship care. So as Paul and Barnabas return to these cities for follow-up ministry, their focus this time isn't public preaching and teaching. It's follow-up discipleship work within that congregation with the people of the church. So if you're taking notes today, this is point number one. Godly leaders continue in discipleship. Godly leaders continue in the work of discipleship. You see, putting your faith in Christ is not the end. It's just the beginning. Paul and Barnabas knew this. They knew the importance of the ongoing work of discipleship. Verse 22 says that they strengthened the believers. This likely refers to the fact that they were further instructing them in their new faith. But this strengthening also occurred in the other activities that we'll read about in just a minute. But it was important for Paul and Barnabas to strengthen these new believers because not only were they facing persecution in nearly every one of these different places, but they were susceptible to falling back into Judaism or pagan beliefs, or even accepting a false gospel, like we see happen in the Book of Galatians. Now, in our context, if we don't continue on with this work of discipleship in our own lives and in the lives of other people that we're we should be actively discipling as well, it's easy to get off course. Um, if you're new in your faith and you don't continue on in, in learning and identifying your gifts, and using your gifts in the context of a com- of a community, it's easy to get discouraged, and kind of pull back. If you've been a Christian for a long time, it's, it's that we're susceptible to legalism. We can, we can be proud of our commitment to different aspects of ministry, or this ministry, or that ministry. You can kind of start to pat ourselves on the back, and think that it's us, but it's not. It's all, it's all about God. So, we we need to be engaged in this process of discipleship our whole life. So whether you're 25 or 95, you're still in this process of becoming more like Jesus. And Jesus is committed to that process. So we're always engaged in the work of discipleship with ourselves and with others. in the spiritual formation that keeps happening in our lives as we follow Jesus. So it was important for Paul and Barnabas to strengthen these believers I want you to think about in your own life, people that you've connected to the church, that you've pointed to Jesus, where, where are they now? Are they still actively following? You might have some names popping into your mind that God's asking you to reconnect to those people and get them back on track, be an encouragement to them, to strengthen them, encourage them. Point number two Godly leaders encourage and warn. Godly leaders encourage and warn. Verse 22 says, They encourage them to continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So as leaders and as people who are discipling others, we must continue to encourage and warn. They did this. They encouraged the believers so that they would continue in the faith, And they warned them because of the coming hardships that were likely around the corner. See, Paul and Barnabas had themselves experienced persecution on, on this trip in almost every city that they shared the good news. So they've reminded the believers that hardship could be expected for all of Christ's followers. Picture of a couple and a young child here. This is a missionary couple. Anybody recognize them? This is Jim and Elizabeth Elliott, missionaries in the 1950s to Ecuador. They're there with their young daughter. And <clears throat> I don't want to tell you this, first of all. Elizabeth was the Bible scholar here. She was studying Hebrew and Greek uh, up in Wheaton, Illinois. And they went to the mission field, were doing different works, and then they got married and then went to reach an unreached people group together. So, incredible, incredible couple. So they traveled to Ecuador to take the gospel to an unreached people group. A group known, uh, to be tricky to deal with, potentially a violent group. And after just three years of marriage, when their daughter was just ten months old, something kind of unimaginable happened. Jim and four other missionaries, four of his colleagues, are killed, are murdered. By the people that they're trying to reach with the good news, <clears throat> as you think about that, so Jim's gone, his colleagues are gone, we've got Elizabeth, their 10 month old daughter. you're probably thinking right now, okay, this is a reasonable course of action, here's another reasonable course. Kind of how would we handle this now? and I don't and I'm not trying to be judgmental on on other situations because of course great tragedies happen on the mission field, and it's hard, but here's what happened. Elizabeth stayed and she went on to spend two more years serving as a missionary to the same people that killed her husband. In fact, she knew that they needed the gospel so bad. She was able to reach them for Christ. She was able to dispel their fears about why the missionaries were there and replace that with the truth of the good news. And they accepted the gospel. It's incredible. She continued in the in the face of incredible loss and hardship. She had incredible faith, and she pers- persevered. She realized that suffering and uh, really depended on the Lord. So it's an incredible example to all of us of perseverance in faith, in the face of suffering. Now Luke, the author of Acts, suggests that this message about suffering was an important part of Paul's ministry of strengthening the believers. So people that are growing in their faith need to understand that it's not just a walk in the park. There's going to be trials, there's going to be suffering, there's going to be difficult circumstances. I think the the, the clear testimony of Scripture is to that effect. Look at 2 Timothy 3.12. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Will suffer persecution. Now we know Christianity is a ministry of reconciliation between humankind and God. That creates a great sense of peace and confidence as you live your life. But here's the other side of it. Because humanity is fallen... That work of, of, of reconciliation that we offer the world also actually creates division because not everybody is open to this message or wants to receive it. Families are split. Um, there's conflict that happens because of the gospel message. So that's the kind of suffering that can happen. In addition to persecution, Christians also can suffer general hardships like anybody else. Temptation, illness, economic hardship other conflicts. So suffering is real and we all know that. But here's a touchy point. Sometimes, as we're walking in obedience to Christ, we head straight into a situation of persecution or suffering or opposition. And we do that because we're walking in obedience. But we can also choose to avoid suffering simply, simply by not walking in obedience. So that's That's the tricky thing to kind of discern. Um, Or other times you can suffer because of your own foolishness or lack of ability to engage people properly with the gospel. But these are the things that we have to realize that suffering can happen when you're walking in flat-out obedience to Jesus. But we can also avoid suffering have a pretty comfortable life by just kind of backing off a little bit. So we need to process that and reflect on that. Something to give serious reflection if we're serious about our walk with Jesus. So are we we avoiding hardship? Are we trading obedience for comfort? Something we all need to reflect on. Now, hardships also come when we care about people and we try to point them to Jesus. The Apostle Paul could have avoided a lot of hardship in his life had he not cared about people, if he didn't concern himself with the waywardness, the weaknesses, and the sins of other people, he could have saved himself a lot of hardship and suffering. But he did care. He cared immensely. Because he cared about others in their relationship to Christ, Paul experienced troubles, hardships, distresses, sleepless nights, beatings, hunger, among other things. So being a Christ follower is not about convenience. We must persevere. Uh, question for you guys. Anybody watch the Olympics this year? You guys Winter Olympics people or Summer Olympics? I love the Winter Olympics. Summer, okay, fair enough. Uh, doesn't that look fun? Uh, the snow's great. So, Winter Olympics was on. I loved it. It's a great time. Uh, in our family, we watched quite a bit of Olympic coverage. Now here's the deal. Eight years ago, if you had told me that I would have watched nearly every minute of figure skating, I would have thought you were nuts. But I have three awesome little girls, and and my wife and I love to watch figure skating with them, and they like to kind of act it out in the living room on the, on the carpet in front of the fireplace. So we watched a lot of figure skating, and I'm going to show you an Olympic clip, but it's not figure skating. Don't worry. Uh, a few years ago, I had an opportunity to go cross-country skiing on the Olympic course in Alberta, where the 1988 Olympics were, and I nearly uh, didn't make it. I was so sore afterwards. Cross-country skiing is not for the faint of heart. You think you're just kind of gliding along. There's ups and downs and curves, and it's, it's a lot of hard work. So check out this clip. This is Jesse Diggins from Minnesota winning the gold. And then I'll have a couple comments. So I don't know who deserves the gold medal, the announcer or Jesse Diggins, but that was an incredible, I mean, you don't even have to like cross country skiing. That was incredible. That's why I love the Olympics. You can get into sports that you could, you could really care less about most of the time. But I'll tell you what, she is, a, she is a serious athlete. I guess, at, I guess she wears glitter on her cheeks. So if I saw her at the starting line, I'd look over and what would you think, like, she's just kind of goofy or, but she, no, she's there to win. Um, she really owned that race. That was incredible. That was a relay. So she took over, came from behind, went up the hills, came around, and then just an incredible finish. But here's what I think about when I look at that. I think about leadership, and I think about discipleship, and I think about what it takes to persevere, to keep going all the way in the face of hardship and suffering. If you don't think it's hard to go cross-country skiing, give it a try. You will be suffering before you get to the, the finish line. But she did it. It's a great picture of what it takes to be a committed leader and a committed disciple of Jesus. So we're encouraged and strengthened in our walk with Christ. And we're going to suffer. We're going to have setbacks, but we can persevere because God is with us. Now here's the other thing they did. They encouraged and they warned, but they also established leadership in the local churches, in every church. Look at verse 23. Paul and Barnabas also appointed elders in every church. With prayer and fasting, they turned the elders over to the care of the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So Paul never, ever left a congregation with a lack of clarity as to what the leadership situation was there at that church. He cared immensely about the church of Jesus and the leadership that was required for it. So in these instances, in these churches that we're talking about in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas appoint the elders. They appoint the leaders. We see the same thing in the book of Titus, where Paul instructs Titus to appoint elders on Crete. But in a different situation, in Ephesus, he says to Timothy in Ephesus, let the church select their leaders. So why the difference? I think as you look at the the New Testament witness on this, what you see is that in new areas, leaders are appointed. In new works, leaders are appointed. In established ministry areas, leaders are also affirmed by the local church. So it's interesting as you look at this leadership structure. Now, of course, many different church groups have many different ways of doing leadership structure, and most of them... We'll point to passages in the scripture to kind of justify how they do structure and leadership. So it makes it a little tricky uh, because there are a lot of different uh, passages about how this is done. But what we're looking at today, we're talking about elders. Let's take a look at this term for a second. It's interesting to note that looking at the New Testament, the term elders is synonymous with the term bishop or overseer. Episcopos and pastors. So elder has a Jewish background. Overseer has a Greek background. We can see this kind of terminology interchange throughout Acts, Titus, and in First Peter. I'm going to show you a First Peter reference right now. First Peter five, one to two. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd or pastor, that's the word, the original word in Greek, shepherd or pastor the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, that's overseer. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So you've got elders, you've got leaders, that's their office, and their function is shepherding, And overseeing. And that's what we have in this context. And so Paul and Barnabas take this leadership appointment business very seriously. It says in verse 23, with prayer and fasting, they turned the elders over to the care of the Lord in whom they had put their trust. With prayer and fasting. A number of you guys may have participated in the recent 21 days of prayer and fasting. It was a great. Activity exercising unity with the church of Fresno and Clovis. Lots of people getting together to pray towards unity and, and other things as well. We had a kickoff service at Woodward Park Baptist. We had a celebration service at Cornerstone Church downtown. And every night in between there was a prayer a prayer service somewhere in the city at a church. I mean there's some incredible things happening in Fresno in terms of church unity, if you didn't know. Um but it was great to see the priority of prayer being engaged with during that time. It's also encouraging for me, uh, as a part of Bethany Church, to see prayer in leadership context here as well. Leadership, stewardship, deacons, discernment, pastoral staff, these are groups of leaders that pray and take leadership very seriously. You go to these meetings and there's a time of prayer to depend on, on the Lord and seek wisdom. So prayer is extremely important. Now here's a challenge for every one of us, myself included. This is, this is tricky a lot of the times. When we're thinking about leadership and how it's exercised in the church or elsewhere, anywhere really, your work, the workplace, politics, government, wherever, but in in our context here, the church, here's a question for you. Go ahead and put that up, Johnny. Prayed on or prayed for? How do you deal with leadership? Prayed on or prayed for? I think it's just kind of innate. If we're just honest with ourselves, it's easy to just be critical, right? Critical of leaders in any context. But if we're going to follow the example of these leaders in the New Testament, we need to be, we need to be prayed up people. We all need prayer and leaders really need our prayer. So we don't pray on leaders, we pray for leaders. I got this from a workshop I went to. This isn't my thing. I went to a workshop on prayer um, with respect to leadership, and it was called Prayed On or Pray For, and we were challenged to pray for people in leadership. They really need it, and it's essential for good leadership. Now, of course, it's easier to be critical of leaders than it is to pray, but it's much harder And it's much better and it's essential to pray for those that lead. One more note about leadership in the New Testament. When you look at leadership in the New Testament, the plural is always used in connection with the appointment of leaders. So while it's true that one person typically emerges as a key leader in a group or on a team, sometimes that's called being the first among equals, so you're all equal on this team, but there's somebody who's especially gifted to do this task of leading. Um, but here's the thing. Biblical leadership operates in the context of a team. In the context of a team. Look at this quote from theologian Alexander Strock. This is from his work entitled Biblical Eldership. Page 85, if you want to check it out sometime. Jesus Christ lived and taught the principles of love Humility, oneness, prayer, trust, forgiveness, and servanthood. After his ascension into heaven, the twelve apostles put these principles into practice by working together humbly and lovingly as a leadership team. Thus they became the first model of collective servant leadership. So that's what leadership is about. It's done within the context of a team, and it's done with humility to be servant leaders, following and emulating Jesus. So these are the kind of leaders that Paul and Barnabas are appointing to work together and to follow Jesus' example. They appoint leaders in the churches and they continue to retrace their steps, finally arriving back in Antioch. Look at verse 26. They returned by ship to Antioch of Syria where their journey had begun. The believers there had entrusted them To the grace of God to do the work they had now completed. So they're back where they started their journey. And I love this. Think about this for a second. They're back where they started their journey. But notice what it says. This is where they started their work before they went on the journey. It says that the believers there at the beginning place, they entrusted them to the grace of God to do the work that they had now completed. So all the incredible things we read about at the beginning that I kind of summarized at the beginning of chapter 14, people coming to Christ, the miracles, the healing, Paul surviving a stoning, um, just continuing on and pressing on in the face of persecution, they were able to do that because these other believers had, at the beginning, had entrusted them to the grace of God to do the work that they were called to do. So leaders really need, and anybody serving in ministry really needs God's grace and needs prayer. This leads to the final point this morning. Godly leaders depend on God's grace to do kingdom work. Everything Paul and Barnabas did was because of God's grace. And they were depending on God's grace. When someone responded to the gospel... It was because of God's grace. When Paul said, stand up and get on your feet, God's grace and power at work. When Paul survived the stoning, it was by the grace of God. When he strengthened and appointed leaders, it was through the empowering grace of God at work. So it's no wonder that Paul and Barnabas decided to stay with these people for a long time. That's what it says in the last verse of this passage today. Because these were believers and friends who had entrusted them and prayed for them, entrusted them to the grace of God to complete their work. As we conclude today, it's important to know that as leaders, we need to be servant leaders, empowered to encourage, strengthen others, all the while being empowered by God's grace. Part of what it means to depend on God's grace is to actually know and love Jesus Not just the idea of being committed to Jesus. To actually know and love Jesus. Not just the idea of being committed to Him. So you might just be here today exploring this whole Christian faith thing, what it would look like to follow Jesus. I want to challenge you today, consider actually knowing and loving and following Jesus. He laid His life down for you and loves you. And for the rest of us who maybe have been following Jesus for a long time, maybe we've slowly kind of become more enthralled with this idea of being committed to Jesus, but not actually knowing and loving him. Sometimes our hearts can just kind of callous over time. We might be impressed that we're, you know, we're doing our R&R journal every day, and we're serving in ministry. It might even be a ministry that maybe you're in charge of, or you're on a team, and it feels good, and you're committed to that. But don't forget, that's a ministry that God's given you. It's all about Jesus. So we need to be more committed to knowing and loving Jesus than being committed to the idea of following him. As we close in prayer today, if you would like to talk with someone about what it looks like to follow Jesus in a personal way, I'd love to chat with you, prayer team. Other people that may have came with you today could chat with you as well. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your great... Amazing, empowering grace that is at work in our lives through Jesus and his sacrifice for our sins, that paid for all of our sins. Father, as we lead, as we serve in ministry, as we work together in teams, empower us by your grace to be encouragers, to be strengtheners, and to be established leaders for the sake of the gospel. We pray that you would truly lead Bethany and we confess that you are truly the leader of our church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.